We're looking at the Psalms this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Psalm 78. And we're going to read the first seven verses of Psalm 78. This is the living Word of God. This is God's Word to us. There's life in these words. So we're going to honor God's Word by standing as we read these words from Psalm 78. So do stand with me. This is what Psalm 78 says. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter hidden things from of old, things that were heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should see their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Amen. Do be seated. So this psalm was actually written by a guy called Asaph. Asaph was one of David's songwriters, one of David's worship leaders. And it's a, it's a psalm written out of revival. So King David is back in Jerusalem, but more importantly, the Ark of God is back in Jerusalem. God is where he should be in the presence of the people. And Asaph is crying out of that, God, thank you for revival. Thank you for what you're doing. But what about my children? What about my grandchildren? I don't know whether he wrote this just at a moment where his wife had given birth or maybe he'd just become a grandfather. But there's a cry within Asaph, God, what about the next generation? What about the generation to come? We're in a time of revival. We're in a time of revival here at, at Cromer in Leicester. As Juliet says, I, I've studied church history kind of for well over 40 years now, and I would say we are in revival here. I, I don't say it lightly. I don't say it arrogantly. But my observation of what God is doing here equates very well with the revivals I read about through history. So you can have a hallelujah at this point. We're in revival. For, for me, I, I noticed, for me personally, I noticed the change at a leaders gathering Saturday the 8th of January 2022. We'd just come out of COVID, we'd just come out of lockdown, and it's kind of like God met us at that moment. It was almost like he was saying, well done for getting out of this and moving on in the purposes of God. That was a mighty time. Uh, he met us, his presence was so thick the atmosphere was so thick in this place, it was almost impossible to stand. It was impossible to stop worshipping. We were in his presence. There were angels in the room. Time became unimportant on that Saturday afternoon. I remember a number of young women coming up onto the stage and spontaneously prophesying over the leaders that day. And we've seen a continuation of the work of the Holy Spirit by God's grace. And we're enjoying what God is doing when God moved on that day. We've seen many healings. We've seen cancers go. 
We've seen heart conditions healed, medically verified cancers gone. Medically verified heart conditions healed to the point where the guy doesn't need any heart medication again. We've seen that in our midst. I pray for more, but God is on the move in salvations. This year alone, we've seen over 240 people come forward and give their lives to Christ in these meetings. 240 people, guys. That is so exciting. This is in this place. People coming forward, praying a prayer, saying, Jesus, change my life. 240 this year alone. People of other faiths turning up at the building because they've heard that there's healing in this place. People giving their lives to Christ and addictions instantly breaking off them. Totally gone, addiction. New believers devouring the Bible, reading the whole Bible in a week. Laughter breaking out in a leaders meeting. We were supposed to be talking about important stuff, quote unquote. We just laughed. God moved so powerfully. A significant national leader came here. He'd been particularly involved in the Toronto blessing, which was a a move of God in the 90s. And he said, this is like Toronto, except more mature. I'll take that. A friend who was part of the Pensacola revival in the mid-1990s. Actually, Amy's here today. She came on mission to England, Peterborough, England, 25-something years ago, and she never went home. And she's with us now. But Amy's comment is this is the nearest she's found to the revival she experienced in Pensacola in America. Friends visiting. This is a text I got from a friend who came. He and his wife came. This is what they said. It is strange to be back home and yet not back. We both feel as though we've been to a different place. Difficult to explain. A different planet sounds too extreme but catches a bit of the otherness that we feel. These are people coming in and finding the Holy Spirit and taking God's blessing, God's anointing, God's revival back to other places. But the question is, as Asaph asked the question, what about the next generation? That was Steve's question to me, which is why I'm standing here this morning. Steve and Joel, as Juliet said, they're actually in uh, Aviva Miento at the moment in uh, Bogota, Colombia. That church has been in revival for well over 20 years. Well over 20 years. And I guess that's his heart, Steve's heart, and, and mine too. God, would you do that here? You see, the history of most revivals is they're a bit short. But why can't God do more? Why can't he do it here? Why can't he do it with us? And Steve asked me the specific question. He said, does history show that the next generation has successfully carried on from the one before. And and that's Asaph's prayer, isn't it? I will utter hidden things from old, things we've heard and known, our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. We commanded our fathers to teach the children. The next generation may know them. Children yet unborn will arise and tell to their children the hope of God. That's the cry of my heart. How about you? How about this next generation carrying on the purposes of God? Next generation revival. And that's the question Steve asked. Does history show that the next generation successfully carries on what God did from the generation before? The answer is yes and no. Because it doesn't always happen. There are many next generations who lose the fire who let the fire 
die down. They, they try and capture what God did in the life of the church of the previous generation and they box it in. And they call it a denomination. And they put laws and stuff around it to try and protect what God had done. But God is not in a box. God's not particularly interested in structures and rules and regulations. And sadly, that's where we get many of our denominations. But I guess I would say this is less and less about the label on the door and more and more about whether there's glory in the house. It's less and less about the label on the door and more and more about whether there's glory in the house. And people come here because there's glory in the house and I'm so grateful to God. Remember what I said, this is not an arrogant message. This is not saying, hey, we're the bee's knees, but we're grateful that the Holy Spirit's turned up and he's doing amazing things. And the reason for that is people are getting on fire. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from John Wesley. John Wesley was the revivalist in the 1700s. The Methodist Church came out of, of Wesley's work a generation later. And this is, I guess, my favorite quote of Wesley's. Get on fire for God and men will come and watch you burn. Get on fire for God and men and women will come and watch you burn. And so some next-gen people missed it. But a lot of next-gen people got it. There's a guy called John Calvin. It may be a name that's known to you from church history. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 bullet points to the church door, kind of the Facebook of the day, and declared that it was only by faith and only through the word of God that we could be saved, the Pope could do nothing. You can pay as much money as you want to the Pope, but you can't buy your salvation. That was the revelation of Martin Luther. A new version of the Bible had just come out, and that went round Europe with Martin Luther's teaching. It changed the nation's. The princes in Germany had had enough of the Pope charging more and more money to build more and more grand things and saying you can buy your way into the kingdom of God. And they protested to Rome. They became known as the Protestants, which is where we get our name, Protestants. The Pope's power had been broken. The power of salvation by works had been broken with Martin Luther. But John Calvin was only eight years old when Martin Luther declared those things, when Europe began to be changed. And the reason we are still living in the good of that today is because Calvin carried it on. What Luther preached, Calvin wrote. He read Luther's teaching. He was in France at the time. He had to run for his life. They were killing Luther's followers. He had to run and he got to Geneva and he stayed at Geneva pretty much the rest of his life and wrote amazing things. The work of Calvin was carried over to our nation and a group called the Puritans, which is a kind of polite version of what was happening in Europe. We're always very polite over here. Uh, we gathered Calvin's teaching. We put it into something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith was carried over on the Mayflower and other ships to the United States, what became the United States of America by the early settlers. And John Calvin's words were put into the United States Constitution. So arguably still the most powerful nation in the world has Calvin's words within. In other words, has revival within their own constitution. So there's somebody who carried the fire. I mentioned John Wesley earlier. He and George Whitfield brought about the greatest change to our nation we've probably ever seen, the most significant revival so far ever to have hit the shores of the United States. Kingdom. They were thrown out of the churches, so they had to preach in the fields, but that was a God-anointed moment, if ever there was one. 
You know, it's sad, isn't it, when, when you're thrown out of places that should be honoring the Word of God. Um, and sadly to say, many revivals are most vociferously opposed, not by the secular, but by other believers. So that's such a sadness to me that that could happen. But praise God, it happened to Wesley and Whitfield, which meant they went on the streets. They went into the fields. They came to the, the big open areas of London and preached the gospel. So where there was normally bare, bare knuckle fighting or bear baiting or even hangings, there was the word of God being preached to a people that had never heard the word of God because they'd never go near a church building. They'd never go in. One man came to one of George Whitfield's meetings and uh, he was a pastor and he said, sir, I am sorry to see you here. To which George Whitfield replied, yes, sir, and so is the devil. Whitfield said the reason churches are so dead is that dead men preach in them. He wasn't afraid to speak some truth. But the open spaces in London were filled with crowds hearing the gospel. One man came to a meeting. It was quite common to throw things at preachers at those days. He said, sir, I came to your meeting with a pocket full of stones to break your head. But your sermon got the better of me and God has broken my heart. That was the revival. That was the word of God reaching people who would never have heard the word of God. John Wesley preached in Leicester. You may know that, Castle Mound, just by De Montfort University. He was thrown out of the church, surprise, surprise, so he preached in the open air. One of George Whitfield's main supporters was called Selina Hastings, better known as the Countess of Huntingdon, a resident of Leicester. So Selina was somebody who censured George Whitfield when he got it wrong. Whitfield was rather worried about some of the signs and wonders that were happening. People were falling over in the spirit. There was shaking going on. There was screaming. There was shouting. And he was wondering whether he should stop it. Uh, Selina Hastings' words, the Countess of Huntington's words, were these. George, you are making a mistake. Don't be wiser than God. Let them cry. It will do a great deal more than your preaching. She's a feisty lady. We've got a few feisty ladies in Leicester. Next generation people who are not afraid to speak the word of God. Hundreds of thousands came to Christ in those Wesley and Whitfield revivals. Hundreds of thousands. It said so many came to Christ that that's the reason the French Revolution never hit our shores. So while they were guillotining everybody in France in a revolution, we received a revival. I prefer revival to revolution. The greatest revival so far ever to have hit our generation. But I want to talk about the next generation from Wesley and Whitfield. If that was the greatest revival that's ever hit our shores, what happened to the next generation? And I want to talk about three guys all called William. So I don't know if you've got it up here. You might be able to see their pictures come up. William Wilberforce, William Carey, and William Bray, or commonly known as Billy Bray. William Wilberforce is known for his work in Parliament overcoming slavery. William Carey became known as the first modern missionary. And Billy Bray was known for his total exuberance and crazy worship. Three guys that came out of the Wesley and Whitfield revivals. For Wilberforce, it was an age of change in Britain. The Industrial Revolution was underway. Uh, the steam engine had been invented. There was a lot of move of agriculture to cities, so cities were building up, there were weaving machines, uh, children workers, 
few women's rights, a lot of drink, a lot of prostitution, and sadly, a lot of child prostitution in those days as Wilberforce was born again by the Holy Spirit. He was the son of a rich hull merchant, and his mum and dad sent him to his aunt and uncle in, in Wimbledon. What mum and dad hadn't appreciated was the aunt and uncle in Wimbledon were total crazy Christians. And she realized too late what she'd done, and she pulled him back to Hull rather than have him there under this influence, but it was too late. God had done his work. Actually, Wilberforce's grandfather said, if Billy turns Methodist, he shall have not a sixpence of mine. I don't know what happened to that, but he did turn Methodist, he turned Christian, and did an amazing thing. He wrote in his diary, I place myself completely at God's disposal. His mother wrote in her letter, he has gone mad. He became the best friend of William Pitt, the future prime minister. He was a good friend of John Newton, who was the slave trader who turned to Christ and wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And it was John Newton that counseled him to continue to be an MP. He became an MP at the age of 21. Next generation, are you listening? He became an MP at the age of 21. But he wondered whether he should become a pastor. But it was John Newton who said, no, don't do that. God has raised you for the good of the nation. They were the exact words that John Newton spoke over William Wilberforce. God has raised you for the good of the nation. Next generation people in this room, God has raised you for the good of the nation. Well, Wilberforce worked with a group in Clapham in, in London who were friends of George Whitfield. Again, there's the connection from the previous generation. John Wesley, shortly before he died, wrote this letter to William Wilberforce. This is what John Wesley said. I encourage your glorious enterprise in opposing the execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. Be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery shall vanish away before it. Because that was the call of William Wilberforce, to get rid of the slave trade, to deal with this abhorrence that was in our nation at the time. In 1789, he made his first major speech in the House of Commons to get rid of slavery in our nation. He was defeated. In 1790, he tried again. He was defeated. In 1791, he tried again. He was defeated. He continued to push on this issue for nearly 20 years. And eventually, on the 23rd of February, 1807, the Slaves Trades Act was carried by 283 votes to 16. As people were applauding William Wilberforce and commending him for what he'd done, he collapsed to the benches in the House of Commons, tears pouring down his face. 20 years, he continued to push against the tyrannies of a nation. How about you, next generation? Are you willing to give your life for God's work, for the Holy Spirit to move? in our nation, and he didn't even stop there, Wilberforce. He continued, he worked for better working conditions, he introduced Sunday schools for the poor, he removed what was called the rotten boroughs where people could pay to be a, a member of parliament, um, he brought in prison reform, he formed the RSPCA, he founded the Church Missionary Society, and he fought against the East India Company in India because they wouldn't allow Christians in. That was William Wilberforce. What an amazing man of God, but he caught it. He'd caught it from Wesley and Whitfield. He'd caught it from the generation before. William Carey 
was just two years younger than Wilberforce. They almost certainly knew each other. They had many mutual friends in common. And Carey's Baptist movement was particularly affected by Wesley and Whitfield. So there'd been revival, if you like, in the Baptist movement. Carey was our very first modern-day missionary, the father of modern mission. He was a shoemaker in Northampton and moved to Leicester to be a pastor. He's a Leicester man. In fact, if you go to the Holiday Inn, just in the centre of Leicester, there's a blue plaque on the wall that will tell you where his church was. If you've got time and Central Baptist Church is open, there's a whole museum there for what William Carey did. What did he do? Well, as a young man, he had a map on the wall and he was praying for the nations. And he was praying for people to go out to what he called the heathen. Lord, would you save the heathen? And God said, how about you? God said, how about you? So he read the scriptures going to all the world and he determined that he would go. He brought a paper to the Baptist convention and was told to sit down. The moderator said these words, sit down, young man, and respect the opinions of your seniors. If the Lord wants to convert the heathen, he can do it without your help. Well, praise God he didn't listen. He preached in 1792 a famous sermon sermon called Enlarge the Place of Your Tents and said these words that have come down to us to this day. Expect great things for God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He founded the Baptist Missionary Society and sent him and his family out as the first missionaries to India. He never came home. Strong mission values, respecting the local culture. They worked as a team. Women had equal status. That was unheard of in those days, sadly. He worked with a couple of other guys in India. They brought about, um, they set up a printing press and brought about many Bibles in local languages, complete full translation in six languages, 24 partial translations of the Bible. They learned to stop attacking Hinduism but preach the cross of Christ. And when they preached the cross of Christ, the Hindus came to Christ in big numbers. They wrote numerous dictionaries and books, created the Ag Agricultural Society of India, still there to this day. They ensured the abolition of Suti, which is where the widow would throw herself on the funeral fire of her dead husband. Within 50 years of Carey's death, half a million Christians were in India. That's the next generation Christian. Sounds wonderful. He was seven years without a convert. His five-year-old son died of dysentery within a year of arriving. His first wife went mad and eventually died. His second wife also died before him. A warehouse fire destroyed many of their translations. On arriving in India, he wrote, I am in a strange land alone. No Christian friend. A large family and nothing to supply their wants. But he is all sufficient. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Our third William is, is a Billy, Billy Bray. Billy Bray was born in Cornwall in 1794. His father died early, so he lived with his grandfather. His grandfather had been converted by John Wesley. So again, there's the next generation connection right in front of us. Uh, Billy Bray himself was a tin miner. He was a drunkard. Um, but then got radically saved through his grandfather and also his wife, who had been a Methodist and had fallen away, and they both came back to God in an amazing way. And he was always singing the hymns of the revival. Billy Bray was a singer. Wherever he went, he would be singing the hymns of the revival. And I believe, as an aside, by the way, we're beginning to see that here too. If 
Chroma worshiper listening to this, I trust you are. There's more songs to come. There's many more songs to come. We're already catching revival in the songs that are being written. That song angels ever sing, the Holy Spirit comes. When we sing it, the Holy Spirit turns up in a real anointing. There's going to be many more of those moments. But for Billy Bray, he sang the songs of the revival. What were the songs of the revival? They were the songs of Charles Wesley, John Wesley's brother. You will know some of these songs. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Saviour's name? You know that one? Love divine, all love's at selling. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. That's probably my favourite. Hark the herald angels sing. When we sing it at Christmas, it came out of revival. No wonder the Holy Spirit comes when we sing that in our Christmas service, right? It was written in revival. And Billy Bray sang the songs of revival. I want to tell you a little story. This is actually written by a pastor called William Haslam from Baldu in Cornwall. So that was really where Billy Bray was based in the Cornwall area. And Haslam himself was a born-again Christian, good guy. (laughs) You probably need to know that before I tell you what happened. So this is his story of what happened when he met Billy Bray. One morning while we were sitting at breakfast, I heard somebody walking about with a heavy step saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. On opening the door, I beheld a happy-looking little man in a black Quaker-cut coat, which it was very evident had not been made for him, but for somebody much larger. Well, my friend, I said, who are you? I am Billy Bray, he replied, looking steadily at me with a twinkle in his eyes. And be you the parson? Yes, I am, I said. Well, thank the Lord. Converted, are ye? Yes, I said. Thank God. And the missus, the missus inside, be she converted? Yes, she is, I said. Thank the dear Lord, he said, moving forward. Be there any servants? Yes, there are three in the kitchen. Be they converted too? I was able to answer in the affirmative. And as I pointed towards the kitchen door, he made off in that direction. And soon we heard them all shouting and praising God together. When we went in, there was Billy Bray singing joyfully. We then returned to the dining room with our strange guest when he suddenly caught me up in his arms and carried me around the room. I was so taken by surprise that it was as much as I could do to keep myself in an upright position till he accomplished his circuit round the room. Then he set me in a chair and rolling on the ground for joy said he was as happy as he could live. He then ran to the nearest cottage and there talked and prayed with the people and enabled to bring them to Christ. And then the next cottage and gave some more blessing. And a third where he was equally successful. What a crazy guy. What a Holy Spirit anointing. What about it, next generation? Are you crazy enough? One pastor criticised him for his dancing. This is what he said. Well, I do dance sometimes. Why shouldn't I dance as well as David? David, you say, was a king. Well, bless the Lord, I am a king's son. I have as good a right to dance as David did. We're finding a bit of that in the house as well, aren't we? Even more than this. Three guys, next generation men of God, who caught the passion of the generation before. That is my prayer for you. That is my prayer for the next generation. Men who changed legislation, men who changed nations, men who changed worship. How about you? How about you? I'm 68 years old. I know I only look 38, but 
You were a bit slow there. I'm 68. I know I look, I look 30. Uh, moving on. Um, so by my calculation, my next generation, if I halve my age, is about 34, 35. So if you're 35 or under, your next generation, Christians, and I'm speaking to you this morning, if you're in your 40s and you want to be included, that's, that's fine. If you're in your 50s and you want to be included, we'll pray for you. <laughs> If you're under 35, what's your response to the word you've heard this morning? Will you catch the fire? Will you catch the fire? Or will you choose to formalise your faith and put it into rules and regulations? If you're under 35, will you be a Wilberforce and change the laws of our whole nation? Will you cause the fire of the Holy Spirit to touch legislation? Or will you grow cold? If you're under 35, will you be a William Carey, willing to serve wherever he sends you? Or will you choose a comfortable life? If you're under 35, will you be a Billy Bray, ready to dance as David danced? Or will you choose to stand at the back and watch? Psalm 145 says, One generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare his mighty acts. Psalm 71 verse 18 says, Even to old age and grey hairs, God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to one to come. That is the cry of my heart. The older I get, the more passionate I get for the next generation. If you've got grey hairs, you've got a job to do. We don't retire in the kingdom of God. If you thought when I was talking about 35 and under, you could get your iPad out and play Wordle or something, God has a purpose for you in bringing through a generation that know the purposes of God. Even to my grey hairs, I will continue to proclaim and declare it as the cry of my heart. By God's grace, we have four adults Children, three grandchildren so far, and by God's grace, they're all going on with God. All four, they're in their 30s and 40s now, all pursuing him. And the reason for that's on the front row. The reason for that is a praying mother. Roe has prayed for our four children every day of their lives. What about it, older generation? Are we going to pray for the next generation? And it's not even just our four kids. We've got adopted kids right around the world. New Zealand, India, Africa. Will you pray? Will you call on God that the next generation will catch the fire? You see, next generation people, we've fought some battles that you don't have to fight now. When I was saved, raising hands in a meeting could throw you out of a church. Sounds stupid, but we've won that battle. When I was saved, an understanding of baptism in the Holy Spirit was not understood at all. Many people taught it had gone out when the Bible came into being in about two to 300 AD. We fought that battle. We've won that battle. When I was saved, many of the gifts of the Holy Spirit were only operated by leaders. But actually, everybody can move in God's gifts. We fought and we've won that battle. When I was saved, the, the offices, if you like, of apostle and prophet were unknown but they're back in the church because they never went away. We won that battle. So you don't have to fight those fights. I've spoken from this platform before of my Old Testament hero, uh, which is a guy called Caleb. 
Uh, he was 85 when he took down the enemy. He climbed the mountain and defeated the giants. 85 years old. The older I get, the more he's my hero. But you know, that wasn't his greatest battle. He defeated the giants in the land, but he also discipled his nephew, Othniel, who became the first judge over Israel. Caleb took a mountain, Othniel took a nation. Come on, next generation. It's nation time. It's Leicester time. Will you pick up the baton? Will you run the race? Do you remember Haley Braun was with us from Bethel Church in California? This is what she said, there will need to be sons and daughters to grab hold of the baton to run this race that is marked with generations running together in revival. That was her prophetic word over this house. Get the baton, grab the baton, guys. There's a race to run here. There's a nation to change. There's nations to change. Leicester is the most multicultural city in the whole of the United Kingdom, second to London. We are the first city to tip over 50% other nationalities. There's a nation to win in our own city. God is about a mighty work in Leicester. Many men and women have prophesied over our city. I don't know if you know that. Many men and women have prophesied over our city who've never been here. It's not like they turned up and prophesied. There are other parts of the world and they're declaring a word over a place they can't even pronounce called Leicester and saying God is gonna move. So we have a, a real Holy Spirit declaration over our city. What about it, next generation? Will you catch the fire? What about it? Will you, to echo John Wesley's words, get on fire so men and women can watch you burn? Or will we have a blue plaque over the door in a generation to come that said revival came here? but went away. I want to be a Viva Miento type church that carries on the next generation, the next generation, the next generation into revival. Give ear, incline your ear. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. That's what I've tried to do this morning. God has a purpose for this city. God has a purpose for the generation that is coming through this city, and that's you. Can I pray for you? Let's stand together.